This afternoon we will begin the portion of the class that I call exegesis on your syllabus. That would be the Bible study methods portion. In exegesis, we will be applying the principles that we learned in hermeneutics, particularly general hermeneutics. So we will essentially not only be reviewing some of them, I won't necessarily mention them, but you'll see them in operation. You'll see how they apply. You'll see how they work in a real passage. So we will eventually kind of gearing our our discussion around a particular passage. And generally in exegesis, you want to deal with paragraphs. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But uh, we'll take a portion of scripture, usually a paragraph, and we will exegete through the passage. And what I will give you is a procedure that walks you through that. And in your actual practice, uh, you can kind of work around it and rearrange things, but I need to structure it in in a way that uh, is understandable to the student. So we will be doing our exegesis portion of the class. Applying the principles, the science of art, and art of interpretation. Now, to kind of introduce this, let me uh, mention some of the advantages of doing your own exegesis, your own Bible study. The example I want to utilize is what what you generally see in in public uh, very often in uh, in the local church. Generally, you will have a pastor or uh, even a Bible teacher so-called, maybe. But generally, uh, a pastor or a leader of a church, and he will analyze his congregation and discern what that congregation needs in terms of sermons or messages or teaching or Bible passage, etc. So, in his analysis, he will uh, determine the need, and then as he sees that need, he will think in terms of what biblical texts might he utilize to put together either a sermon or even a message that would meet uh, a particular need. Then uh, he, he thinks in terms of what might illustrate whatever concept he's trying to get across or message he's trying to convey. So he puts together illustrations or poems or other items that you find in general sermons. But this is what I would describe as an idea-driven message or idea-driven sermon. And personally, I think it is incomplete in terms of an overall diet that churches and individual Christians need in order for them to, to progress and grow in that setting. Now, ultimately, I think any pastor or preacher should encourage his his congregation to get into the Word for themselves. But this idea-driven message is not a very good example to even encourage individuals to do that, and I think it's incomplete in in feeding the congregation. Instead of that, I would like to think that we would be emphasizing what I describe as a text-driven message. Letting the passage or letting the text drive the topics rather than selecting the topics. See the difference? 
instead of the preacher deciding what he thinks the congregation needs, the better approach, I think, is to pick a book that might best meet the needs of the congregation and then week by week allow the Holy Spirit to determine what the congregation needs or the the individual's need. So I call this a text-driven series of messages where the Holy Spirit is the guide rather than the the preacher. And this approach would be a verse-by-verse exposition of a biblical book. So you go sentence-by-sentence would be more accurate, actually, but a lot of people are familiar with verse-by-verse. And when you structure, say, a series in this way, there's a lot of advantages to that. With a with an idea-driven message, even if you have a series, the preacher is going to have a tendency. We all have tendencies. We have favorite passages. We have passages that we don't feel familiar with or we're uncomfortable with or there might be some issues there that even if I select this passage, I might be accused, well, he's picking on us as a congregation. And maybe, uh, you know, that's some of the motivation, is he's trying to address some issues. So there might be some truth to that accusation. But when you select a book, and you go sequence by sequence, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, then no one really has a legitimate complaint that you're really picking on them, because they know next week this is the passage. And if it happens to step on people's toes, well, so be it. This is a, a Holy Spirit-guided way of preaching and, and teaching. Personally, I have done this for many years. I've taken books and done expositions of an entire book. And generally, I'll go through the whole book. And I can do it with a clear conscience, even when I know that this passage is probably going to go against the grain of a, several people in the, in the congregation. I have never been accused of picking on them because uh, basically all I do is do an exposition of the passage. And then the Holy Spirit is the one that is doing the convicting through the passage itself. So that's one of the advantages. In that, over the years, i found that if you need to do apologetics, you don't have to do a whole series on apologetics because just the passages themselves oftentimes are apologetic in nature. So when the passage does that, then or is more apologetic in nature, then that's the emphasis of the message. And I'll do apologetics. I'll defend whatever area of Christianity needs defending in that circumstance. But it's the passage that dictates the approach. See what I'm saying here? Or if there's a theological issue, I don't have to devote a, a message to a particular theological issue. Scripture itself will raise all of those theological issues as you deal with any given book. Now, some books are more theological in nature than others, so there'll be more theological issues that you'll deal with. But it's the Holy Spirit guiding through that book that determines which areas of theology are are treated. So, yeah, I have done a series that we've selected in a particular area, for example, I do a, a seminar pretty common on science and the scriptures. So we took time away from this kind of a message and dealt with that issue. 
But in general, when I was involved with that church, I, I went verse by verse or sentence by sentence. And this gave a, a complete balance in preaching and teaching guided by the Holy Spirit. And over the years, eventually, you deal with pretty much most of the issues that Christians face because that's what uh, the passages ultimately lead you to. So this is a text-driven approach rather than a idea-driven approach. And the whole process of exegesis helps you in that process because what you will be doing is exegeting passage after passage. And as a result, you'll be handing the congregation or even a group, if you do this in in a series in a Bible study, you'll be delivering the whole counsel of God. Because all of our tendencies are to favor certain areas and left to ourselves, we will avoid some of those difficult issues. Maybe we don't feel comfortable dealing with issues of marriage or issues of whatever. You name the issue. But those issues will come up in the passages themselves. Because in the the Gospels, if you're dealing with any particular book in the Gospels, Jesus deals with all of these issues. Or if you're dealing with a letter, you'll come up with those issues in the letters because they were part of what uh, the church experienced in the first century. Even if you deal with issues in the Old Testament, I've done an exposition of the book of Genesis. And I found that when we did the book of Genesis, it was extremely practical. Dealt with everyday issues that uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob faced. Uh, Those are the same issues that we face today. I've I've gone through the book of Revelation. An exposition of the book of Revelation. Same thing. You might think it just just deals with prophecy. Well, predominantly that's the main theme, but there's a lot of other things in there that uh, are very informing and useful. So, there are tremendous advantages to a what I would describe as a text-driven approach. So that's what exegesis kind of guides you through. How do you do this? How do you how do you take a passage and how do you move through a book passage by passage? And I'll walk you through that procedure. And we will even begin immediately in our first session on that. Just a reminder, we are Utilizing the principles of the grammatical, historical, contextual method, or more commonly, as we referred to in that portion of the course, the literal method of interpretation. And remember when we talked about the literal method, I mentioned that this does not ignore or deny that there are figures of speech or metaphorical language on occasion. So we talked about how do you deal with metaphorical language. Literal in the sense that you look for the plain or normal or natural sense of a passage. We talked about uh, hermeneutics having the two components, general hermeneutics or the general principles. And then secondly, another major area, special hermeneutics or special genres. Exegesis takes these principles from these two areas applies them to the biblical text itself. And then once you have exegeted a passage in the privacy of your your office or your study, then the next stage is exposition, 
where you either preach it or you teach it or you use the the content in a discipleship or one-on-one experience with another believer. So exposition, the exposition process is a broad area where now I, I take what I've learned in my exegesis and try to convey it to somebody else. This is what we will be doing the next several weeks, exegesis. I'd like to begin with giving a little bit of background. Where did exegesis come from? And let me give you a relationship here. Some of you may be familiar with the scientific method. Any, any of you from high school or just in general? General idea, you have an idea what the scientific method is? There are three basic stages or steps in the scientific method. Observation. That's the first stage of the scientific method. In fact, it's on your screen here. Is observation. And what you do as a scientist is you observe the phenomenon that you're studying and in making observations, what you're doing is you're collecting data. You're collecting information. What is there in this particular area, this particular field that I'm observing, that I'm studying? You're collecting data. The second stage is generalization. Now you you look at that data and see how this data is related and you begin to think in terms of coming up with relationships and you think in terms of, of a hypothesis to explain this data. How do I explain this phenomenon, this occurrence? That's called generalization. And in that we form relationships we uh, first form a hypothesis. This explains the data that I've collected, or at least it appears to explain it. And once you form a hypothesis, then the, the third stage is what? What do you do with uh, the hypotheses? That's the third stage in the scientific method. Tested. tested, exactly. That's called verification. That's the testing stage, where you... Uh, Create a test situation to see if your hypothesis uh, is valid. And if you can show that uh, perhaps maybe uh, in your experiment that the data really does fit the hypothesis through testing, then perhaps you are onto something. But in the testing process, you also want to try to conceive of a way to disprove your hypothesis. And if you can do, if you do that, well then it invalidates your hypotheses and either you have to modify it or change it in some way or abandon it altogether. That's the scientific method. Now what we are going to do in exegesis is exactly the same thing. And historically, what actually happened in time was A lot of people don't know this because it's not in the secular literature uh, very much, but it's actually a historical fact that modern science was founded by Bible-believing Christians who understood the biblical concept of natural theology. Do you know what natural theology is all about? Natural theology, behind that idea, is that God is the creator of all things. 
and because he is the creator of all things, then when you observe nature or you observe the creation, you should uh, see something that tells you something about God. Romans 1 or Psalm 19. Romans 1 tells us that man has an internal revelation and that God has made himself known inside of each human being. But then verse 20 also says that there's an external revelation that uh, the things that have been made by God reveal something of God, his eternal nature, his eternal power, his divine nature and his eternal power. Something of his nature it can be derived from uh, that that was created. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So if you study astronomy, you should see something of who God is. The nature of God, something is revealed in the creation. So Bible-believing Christians took those ideas, those concepts, and said, well, the study of God's creation is a probably a valuable pursuit. And some of them became scientists. Probably one of the best known is Isaac Newton. Few know that Isaac Newton was actually, in his age, known more for his Bible uh, teaching. He was a Bible scholar before he was a scientist. He wrote commentaries. And he was better known for his commentaries in his day than he was known for his science. Now, we look back and the secular literature will only tell you about his scientific ideas and achievements. But he was actually a Bible-believing Christian that studied nature to bring glory to God. And what they did, these scientists, not just Isaac Newton, I've got a, a slide that will show others, others that were involved, founders of modern science. Got Isaac Newton as one of them, but scientists like Johann Kepler, Robert Boyle. Boyle is given credit for being the father of chemistry, Newton, the father of dynamics, Kepler, astronomy, Lord Kelvin, thermodynamics, etc. You've probably heard of Louis Pasteur, bacteriology and biology. These are the founders of, or at least given credit for being the founders of these areas of science. Every one of these were Bible-believing Christians that studied their Bible. And what they did is they took their hermeneutical tools, their exegetical skills, and as they applied them to Scripture, they found that it helped them in understanding Scripture. They took those same principles, those same skills, applied them to nature, and as a result, today we look back and think in terms of the scientific method. So the scientific method is founded on exegetical principles, not just secular science. It just didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of Bible-believing scholars that took those skills and applied them to the study of nature. And you have these others as well, uh, Michael Faraday, Matthew Mari, etc. All of them were Bible believers that took their exegetical skills and applied them to uh, the study of nature. Therefore, what we will be doing is really applying the scientific method, if you will, to the study of the biblical text. So let me draw this 
comparison, and this is from history. This is this is the historical parallel that exists. The first principle we said was observation. First principle of the scientific method is observation. In science, the scientist applies the principle of observation to nature, gathers the data, analyzes it, makes observations on nature or creation. The exegete does exactly the same thing, except he applies it to the biblical text. And, in fact, historically, that's where it began. It began with observation of the biblical text, and then they transferred those same principles to studying nature or science. Secondly, we said that the next stage is generalization in the scientific method. Generalization in science, you form a hypothesis to try to explain the data or to organize your observations. Exegesis, you do the same thing. You take the details of the text, the details of your observations, and you form a preliminary, what we might call, interpretation or a generalization. You try to explain, well, this is the meaning of the text, or at least this is my preliminary understanding of what I think the text is saying. You're doing the same thing. Next, you do what's called verification. In the scientific method, we said that involves a test of the uh, hypotheses to see if it holds up under testing. In exegesis, you take that interpretation and try to find a substantiation that you've come to the right conclusion. And if you have not, through your substantiation process, then you revise it. Just as the scientist, after testing, he might have to revise his hypotheses. Or he might have to abandon that hypothesis altogether. So also, you might say, no, no, I think I, I kind of went astray on that interpretation. I need to rethink this, make more observations, and come to a, a new initial interpretation. Or you might even call it a new hypothesis concerning the, the meaning of that text. So that's what we will do. We will make observations, we will make generalizations, and we will verify them and either validate them or not. Now, in science, once you have come to a conclusion and you feel comfortable with your hypotheses, then what happens? Is it established in the scientific world? No, not necessarily. In fact, uh, rarely. What happens after that? In other words, you come up with an idea, your tests seem to validate it, then others come behind you and they will run tests as well. In other words, other scientists will think through the same data and they may test that same hypothesis that maybe you initially came up with or they may independently come up with a similar or identical hypothesis and they will test it. After a long enough period of testing of the hypotheses, then what does it become? A theory, exactly. It becomes a theory where uh, it, there's, there seems to be some validity to this theory, and it is generally accepted, but it's, it, it is not established yet as certain, which is the next stage. After adequate testing, 
of the theory after a long period of time and after there's a consensus in the scientific community, then it becomes what? Law. Law. That's what we call law in science. Now, that doesn't mean it's true. Historically, we have seen, in fact, the well-known theory that became law that was not true was the, the law of biogenesis. There was a theory that at that stage in the development of science, scientists thought that life came about spontaneously. They observed as a result of rotting flesh or meat, maggots arose. They thought that life spontaneously arose from that dead material, matter. And they came up with a theory of biogenesis And it became extensive enough in terms of its acceptance that it was called the biogenic law. But obviously today we know that that was not true. So just because it becomes scientific law doesn't necessarily make it true. As science progresses and we learn more, then some theories that became well-known and established law have been abandoned historically. Similarly, when we come to the biblical text, you may come up with an interpretation and you feel pretty confident in it and you have some evidence that you use to support your conclusion from the text or context. Other believers, other members of the body of Christ that study the same passage, they may come along and they may, in fact, validate what you have come up with and say, yeah, I agree. And when the community the overall general community, maybe a denomination, agrees, then it becomes pretty much dogma within that denomination at least. And once the entire community of Christians over time and over long periods of time accept a doctrine, then it becomes orthodoxy, like the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, today we don't, well, it's debated, but in large measure, we actually use the doctrine of the Trinity to distinguish those that are orthodox from those that are not. So that's how we come up with our theology. Again, just like in science, there are some doctrines that, I wouldn't say the doctrine of the Trinity, but there are some doctrines that have been changed over time as a result of further exegesis. Okay? So that's the exegetical process parallel with the the scientific method. Now, we take it a little step further, and uh, science doesn't just end there once it comes up with its laws. We want to utilize those laws uh, in engineering. Engineering takes the principles of science, or some of them, and applies them in a practical way in building structures, building roads, building cities, building machines, uh, utilizing it in some way. That's what engineering is all about. Is It applies the principles of science. That's why you take so much science when you uh, get a degree. That's my degree is engineering, and most of my courses were science courses. And in the latter two years, you take those principles of science, how do they apply in these different engineering applications. Similarly, in exegesis, you want to apply what you are confident. In other words, I I think I understand this biblical text now. I've substantiated it. And by the way, this is where commentaries come in. 
it helps you with the process of substantiating the work that you have done. And I see it as a valuable step towards the latter stages of your exegesis rather than your initial stages. Most Christians go to the commentary first. I think that's a mistake. We'll talk about that later. After you are confident that you understand the biblical text, now you want to apply it. And we'll talk about application. That's part of the exegetical process. How do I apply it to myself? And then now, how do I apply it more broadly to others as well? Also, uh, another stage here. After an engineer comes up with a design, it is on paper, basically, and any more on computers as well. Then you take that design and you build it. You build that that highway or you, you build that subdivision or you build that machine that you designed. Similarly, in exegesis, that's the next stage. Now, we won't deal with that in this course, but after you've done your exegesis, exegesis basically will end right here, and now you will do exposition. All of those areas that we described earlier, preaching, teaching, Sunday school, home Bible studies, counseling, whatever, one-on-one discipleship. Does that make sense? So this procedure attempts to give you sound reasons to be able to go to a biblical text and feel confident that you understand what the initial author tried to communicate. You're going to try to validate what you have concluded. So you want to look for reasons why, in in the process, reasons why the conclusions that you come to are valid. And then you can discuss it with another believer that perhaps is exegeting the same passage. And if he's come to a different conclusion, you can tell him, well, did you consider this? And if he says no, then maybe you are on the right track and he needs to revise his conclusions or vice versa. And we can do that with one another or we can do that via commentaries. There's a variety of ways of doing that. So this is a tested, a well, that's why we call it a science, science and art of interpretation, hermeneutics. Everyone in our culture accepts the scientific method. In fact, we elevate sciences uh, probably far more than is warranted. We ought to, in the same way, accept good exegesis. Okay? So that's the procedure. A few suggestions. Number one, just as the scientist attempts to be objective, this is a a number one goal in the entire endeavor of science, this should also be a high priority in our exegesis. And what we mean by that is let the text speak for itself. Remember some of the hermeneutical principles that we discussed. Look for what the author intended to communicate. Uh, by the way, similarly, a true science is trying to get at what God put into nature. In other words, how does he make nature work? How does nature work? What What's going on here? The true scientist, the, the Christian scientist, is always looking for uh, what has God done here? He's ultimately looking at an ultimate author of creation, Similarly, with the biblical text, we want to see what the ultimate author of the text is trying to communicate. So you want to be objective. Let the text speak rather than imposing our 
understanding on it. Now, we will lay out the principles in in a logical order, but in actual practice, you will apply these simultaneously. You'll make a few observations. You'll come to initial conclusion concerning what you think that passage means, maybe that sentence or maybe that word. And then you'll continue making more observations. And then you might revise or you might uh, refine how you understand that passage. And you'll be working back and forth between observation and generalization until you have uh, something that you uh, you feel represents the whole passage. Uh, plus, you'll be dealing with individual parts of a passage, and you'll be doing you'll come to conclusions concerning individual parts, and then you want to bring it all together and synthesize it. So, in practice, you'll be doing the principles simultaneously, or not necessarily in the sequence that I'll be presenting them to you. So keep that in mind. Also be selective. You won't be using all of the principles of hermeneutics or all of the principles of exegesis in every single passage. So you'll have to be selective as you study. That's why it's an art. Fourthly, the only way that you will learn these is to actually do them. In other words, practice. Practice them. This is a skill that you'll be developing, a skill that takes development. It'll take time. You will feel perhaps even awkward in your first attempts at exegesis, and you might even throw up your hands and feel like it's a futile pursuit, that you can't do it, but keep at it. Everybody goes through that, and you can overcome that and eventually become comfortable. I've been doing exegesis for, I don't want to give away my, my age here, but <laughs> uh, over 25 years, actually more than that, 30 years, and it gets easier. It's still a difficult task. It's not easy, but it's extremely rewarding, extremely rewarding. It's well worth the effort. I wouldn't go back. So you need to put them to practice. The analogy that I like to use, I also like sports, and I'm still pretty active in some sports. You don't learn a sport by reading it in a book. You might be able to learn the rules of the game. If you like basketball, you can learn all the rules of the game. You can learn the history of the game. You can read biographies of some of the the, uh, outstanding basketball players of history. Uh, You might know all of those things but you will not be able to dribble a ball until you get on a basketball court and start dribbling it. You won't be able to shoot a shot until you start shooting. You won't be able to play the game until you start playing with someone else. Similarly, in exegesis, you won't learn the principles until you actually do them. The assignments are geared to, to this process of practice. Keep in mind, I'm going to give you a lot of detail on your exegetical process. We cannot exhaust a passage. Do you remember the spiritual? We're dealing with infinite principles. We're dealing with things that are eternal in nature. We want to do thorough work, but we cannot exhaust a passage. So you eventually have to stop your exegetical process and start getting out and teaching the passage. 
Another reminder, we talked about this as a prerequisite. This is just a reminder here in the process. It's not mechanical. It's not even like the scientist where you can do a lot of scientific work without the Holy Spirit, but without the Holy Spirit, your exegesis will never be what it can be. Remember, God is the ultimate author behind the human author. We believe in inspiration, but we also believe that God is the revealer to the original authors. So we require the filling of the Holy Spirit. And to the extent that we are in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit, to that extent our exegesis will be either helped or hindered. So these are just a few practical suggestions before we get into the actual principles. First thing we want to consider are some preliminary issues or preliminary things in the process, the exegetical process. The first one is book study. For those of you that are taking this course for credit, let's take a few minutes and discuss the course requirements. Those of you that are simply auditing, you can skip the rest of this portion of this lecture. You'll notice that the course requirements include 150 pages of reading out of the course text that you selected, and you are to write a critique of the book, which includes things such as strengths and weaknesses, any biases that the author may display, and a theological perspective of the author. In other words, where's the author coming from theologically? And this pertains primarily to his attitude towards Scripture. Now, that portion of the requirements should be completed at about this stage in uh, your study of the course in terms of the lectures. So basically about after you've completed lecture number eight, you should be getting close to completing the reading. And if you have not, then you might take some time and complete the reading and turn that portion in. The other requirements, next one is B, complete and turn in the special assignments presented on the assignment sheet. That is a separate sheet that details each of the assignments. There are six of them, and for these assignments, I'm asking you not to use any commentaries or any reference tools except for a concordance. You can use the translation sheet that I also supply with that sheet. It's the New American Standard. If you have New American Standard, I'd prefer that you use it. It'll make it easier for me to grade. It's best that you not attempt to do the assignments until after the lecture that pertains to that particular assignment. For example, the main portion of the first assignment deals with a book study, and I will not deal with that until lecture number 10, which will be the next lecture. So you need to listen to lecture number 10, and then do the assignment number one. So once you've done that, then assignment number one will make sense to you and you can complete it. Similarly, assignment number two deals with observations. So 
We will have a series of several lectures on observations, and you'll be able to complete that one after we have looked at observations in Lecture 13. So after Lecture 13, you can begin working on Assignment Number 2. Assignment Number 3 still deals with observations. And that one can be completed after all of the lectures pertaining to observations, which would be lecture number 14. Assignment number 4 deals with interpretive questions and the word study. The word study will not be completed in terms of the lecture until lecture number 17. So after lecture 17, you can do that one. Similarly, assignment number five, you will want to wait until we have completed the portion dealing with structural analysis, and that will be done in lecture number 19. And then the last one, assignment number six, pertaining to outlining and application and correlation, that one should not be done until you have completed lecture number 22. And that actually completes all of the lectures pertaining to the Bible study methods portion, or I've been describing it as exegesis. It's at that point that you can also complete the course requirement pertaining to the informal paper, five to ten pages. And on the syllabus, I give you the three options and once you've completed that, you should turn it in as well. Option number one, describe five ways to apply what you learned in the course to your life and ministry. You can choose that. Or if you prefer to do reading, you have the option of reading a 100 additional pages from any book related to the course. I ask you to outline it or summarize the content of the reading such that you have a good summary and do that for you, don't do it for me, so that it is helpful for you later on and you don't have to reread the book. And if you read a separate book, I'm asking you to write a critique of the strengths, weaknesses, biases, theological perspective of the author of that book. And if you prefer to write a research paper and do some research, that's an option for you as well for the informal paper. And you can write a research paper on any issue related to hermeneutics. And the last assignment that will be due at the end of the course is to turn in the exegetical paper. Now you can begin working on the exegetical paper and should, after you've listen to the portions of the Bible study methods lectures pertaining to any area dealing with the exegetical paper. The six assignments are designed to prepare you to write the paper, and some of the assignments pertain very directly to the exegetical paper. So as you do the assignments, you can also do the corresponding work related to the assignments that also are applicable to your exegetical paper. So if you need more instructions on it, there's a full instruction sheet on the writing, at least the format of the exegetical paper. That also is 
with the assignment sheet, part of that document. And if you need further guidance at any time on any of the assignments, don't hesitate to call me, and uh, I can discuss it in any detail that you need. It's better that you get clear guidance than try to figure out what what is expected on the either the special assignments or particularly the exegetical paper.